Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School and each week we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. Should Australians get a fair go and a first go at jobs in the post-COVID economy? Labor Home Affairs spokesperson Christina Keneally certainly thinks so, and the Senator is not alone. Prime Minister Morrison said the government expected net overseas migration to fall by 30% this financial year, and again by 85% next financial year, which means immigration reform will be one of the key talking points as Australia scales down its global isolation and begins the economic and social rebuilding effort. But is immigration, and by extension immigrants, a fair scapegoat? To help us understand and cut through the red tape is our panel of guests. Mohammed Al-Khafaji is the Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Ethnic Communities Council of Australia, or FECA, the country's peak ethnic communities body. Professor Peter MacDonald is a University of Melbourne Professor of Demography. And Professor Jock Collins is a Professor of Social Economics at the University of Technology, Sydney's Business School. Thank you all for joining us. The big news story surrounding immigration at the moment is the comments made by Senator Christina Keneally on May 3rd in an opinion piece for the Sydney Morning Herald, and she called for cuts to immigration to protect Australian jobs. Now, the exact phrasing used by the senator was, we must make sure that Australians get a fair go and a first go at jobs. So a little bit of a play on words there of uh, the Liberals' election slogan. Now, we contacted the office of the senator about appearing on today's show. Unfortunately, the senator wasn't available. However, we'll still discuss the comments nonetheless. So Professor Collins... It does seem like a natural place to start the discussion. Is it wise to be discussing the possibility of cutting immigration to help ease the Australian economy out of COVID-19? The critical thing is that we've got to have these debates without borrowing that notion that you know immigrants take our jobs. So that was my main concern about her contribution, not that she's talking about immigration or indeed not that she's talking about temporary migration, which is three times larger than the permanent intake, but the language she's using in that discussion. So it's still a conversation worth having? Oh, look, it's a critical uh, conversation. Uh, You know, my view uh, is slightly different than in the sense that uh, the recovery phase will be very, very difficult. Um, Immigration has had many uh, benefits to the economy and society, and I don't think you'd be wanting to sort of um, you know, take that away from the recovery period. So uh, I think the temporary migration issue is one that's particularly scarred with some exploitation of temporary migrants, wage theft, some abusive from practices by employers. They're still there. They need to be addressed. Uh, but I think they can be addressed at the same time uh, that we have sort of continued migration intakes to help stimulate the recovery. A term that gets a fair amount of mileage within political circles in any discussion about immigration is dog whistling. Now, in simple terms, it describes conveying a subtly aimed political message through coded language. Now, Greens leader Adam Bant accused Senator Keneally of blowing the dog whistle on immigration reform. So, Professor Collins, you've briefly alluded to it, but why does immigration policy routinely find itself challenged during economic downturn? 
Yes, well, look, we've seen this so many times at the, um, the for example, the 82 recession. Uh, after that, we had the Blaney debate and the Asian immigration stuff. After the 1991-92 economic downturn, uh, that gave rise to Pauline Hanson, Mark One, with her concern about uh, Asian immigration. So the, the problem is that uh, after each economic downturn, uh, there is a new immigration debate that's generally um, you know, led by anti-immigration advocates who bring in the xenophobic claims that they take our jobs, they don't settle well. Um, so the fact that we have a downturn and that that uh, ignites a discussion about immigration is just repeating old habits, uh, old patterns. It goes without saying that an economic recession brought on by COVID-19 is unlike any situation the world has seen since the Spanish flu. Is there anything, Dr Collins, that strikes you as being particularly different about the current rhetoric or indeed where this rhetoric is coming from in Australian politics? Uh, The different thing at this time is the Labor Party and the Labor Party's immigration spokesperson who's raising these issues and not someone uh, from uh, the right wing of Australian politics. So I think that's the, uh, the thing that's different in this event. Now, on the 1st of May, the Prime Minister said that the government expected net overseas migration to fall by 30% this financial year and again by 85% next financial year. Now, that's an extraordinary decline from assumptions of about 270,000 annual arrivals. Now, Professor MacDonald, when announcing this, the Prime Minister cited your research several years ago. In December of 2018, you presented to the Council of Australian Governments, the states and territories, premiers and chief ministers, and the Prime Minister on keeping overseas migration intake within a range of 160,000 to 210,000 a year. Can you tell us a bit more about what that research entailed and why that aforementioned range is so desirable? Yes, well, this is uh, it's primarily about the demographic structure of the population, and that comes about through where the fertility rate sits, uh, not, not migration at all. If the fertility rate in Australia was about 2.1 births per woman, that's the replacement level, then the age structure of the population would remain unchanged uh, right out into the future, and there essentially wouldn't be necessarily be a need for migration for age structure purposes. But Australia's fertility rate uh, has been below 2.1 now for about 45 years. That means in the long run, without migration, the population falls or declines and the population gets much older. In recent times we've had quite a fall in the fertility rate in the last few years and now it's under 1.7 which is a long way below 2.1. Migration uh, works to change that situation uh, in two ways. One, the migrants come in at young ages and therefore they change the age structure themselves but much more importantly is that the migrants come in at young ages and then they have their children and then they have their grandchildren before they themselves get old. And it's the births to migrants that make the big difference to the demographic age structure. So overall, I think that Senator Kiddielli talks about 2.1 million temporary migrants as if they're all employed. The 2.1 million number includes tourists who are not allowed to work. Uh, It includes New Zealanders. We've had a a relationship with New Zealand for about the last 30 years, 40 years, uh, to enable them to come to Australia and work, and we go there. Uh, and it also includes children. Take all of those out, and you've got about a million temporary migrants in Australia. And then have a look at who, 
how many of them work? About 50% of them work. So rather than 2.1 million, we have about 500,000 temporary migrants working. Now, Mohammed, in 1995 to 96, permanent migration in Australia was 58% families, 25% skilled migrants, and 17% humanitarian migrants. And a decade later, the overall migrant makeup had changed dramatically. It was 62% skilled, 29% family, and 9% humanitarian. Now, those figures have obviously ebbed and flowed over the years, but they've remained relatively true since. Now, what do these numbers say about Australia's immigration model and some of the pitfalls of shifting that focus from families to workers? Yes, look, I think uh, it's really interesting um, what it says about Australia as a country since the policy shift um, in rebalancing the migration program. I think what it says about us is that, um, you know, we're mainly focused on growing the economy um, and I guess using the temporary migration as a tool to um, speed up that uh, growth and with with not a lot of regard to what's going to happen to those people a few years down the track. It's really ignoring the the impact on the social cohesion on in the community for these people who have come here to Australia, who have skills, who have paid taxes, and who want to become Australian citizens, uh, you know, by the end of this process, and also want to be, you know, calling Australia home for good and having their families with them. I, I guess our problem with the current model is the the idea of having a cap on uh, permanent residency, whereas currently we don't have a cap on temporary migration. Now, I guess the problem at the moment we're seeing with the with this coronavirus is that the government has actually stopped processing um, permanent residency applications, and a lot of people's, um, I guess, livelihoods and futures are um, up in the air at the moment. Um, and, you know, these people who potentially deserve and are eligible for permanent residency and essentially uh, for some kind of welfare system aren't eligible for at the moment. Back in the Howard government, they shifted the balance between family and uh, skilled and put it on a ratio of two to one, two skilled, one family. The ratio has remained pretty close to that ever since. So it's a fixed way of doing things. But it has a a pretty disastrous side effect because the demand for partners or in the family stream is much higher than the places that are available. And we now have a pipeline of something like 100,000 partners of Australian citizens who cannot get permanent residence in Australia because of the cap that is placed upon their entry. The worst aspect of this is that it's actually against the law, (laughs) that the Migration Act uh, says that migration of partners of Australian citizens shall not be capped, but it has been capped in Australia at least for about 15 years. Now, I'd like to see somebody take this to court (laughs) and challenge the government. Once upon a time, it applied to children of Australian citizens as well, uh, but uh, about five years ago that was changed. It was recognised that it was illegal and uh, now children can come in uh, according to demand. And in doing this, we're actually discriminating against Australian citizens because the partners of skilled migrants can come in immediately and get permanent residence. But the partners of an Australian citizen can't. Now, there's no logical reason to this. A lot of them are actually in Australia at the moment and and they're allowed to work. So it's kind of ridiculous not to give them permanent residence because they're here anyway and they're going to get it in the future and they are legally entitled to it. Do you anticipate a bottleneck situation when government services return to normal 
do you expect that there will be an enormous lag period for the number of applications that will have to be processed very quickly? Well, there is currently um, a bit of a backlog for Australian citizenship, um, which the government is pouring lots of resources into at the moment to make sure that um, they clear that backlog. But with this coronavirus pandemic, all of that backlog is starting to pile up again. And we think that the same is going to happen with permanent residency applications. To Professor Collins, as you've said, after each recession in Australia, there is a new national immigration debate that emerges from its wreckage. The early 1990s recession, as you've mentioned before, Pauline Hanson Mark One, I believe you referred to her as, she hit the federal stage with another promise to end Asian migration. Now, the key message that you've derived here is that immigrants take our jobs and challenge our values, or at least that is what the fear is amongst many of these sort of fringe political elements. Now, do you think that a similar national debate about immigration will come out of a COVID-19 related recession. And given the way that the world has fundamentally changed from the virus, what exactly would that debate look like? We can already see the the first stages of of a new immigration debate, not only in Australia, but in other countries. Of course, the fear is linked to the massively rising unemployment rate, the like of which we really probably haven't seen. I mean, it got up to about 10% in the the 90s, very high. But, you know, so we've seen unprecedented levels of um, unemployment, uh, you know, sort of a great degree of worrying about the future of people. And in that circumstance, um, you know, the, the whole issue of debating immigration is a very reasonable and responsible thing to do. The key issue really would be, um, in a sense, rebooting migration to the expected levels, let alone to anything that sort of exceeds that. And so I think that's going to be the initial challenge, particularly during the early stages of the recovery, just to get the sort of the migration flows back in the pipeline. And then, of course, the whole issue becomes what sort of society do we want? What sort of immigration policy is commensurate with that? I mean, we had for many decades after the Second World War a settler immigration policy. Uh, We wanted migrants and their families to come and settle to rebuild the nation. John Howard, as um, Peter has alluded to, uh, the big movement to temporary migration opened up substantially uh, so that now outnumbers permanent intakes uh, three or four times. And the question I often pose myself was, does that mean that Australia has abandoned a settler immigration model and replaced it with a a guest worker, uh, a temporary migration model? And my answer is that no, because a number of temporary migrants become key components of the next year's permanent migration intake. And the Productivity Commission in its uh, report published in 2016 on Australia's migration system indicated that the average temporary migrant has about three and a quarter three and a half temporary visas before they get a permanent one. So in a sense, the temporary uh, migration program is in part funneling people towards the permanent settler immigration system. So in a sense, you know, what I would argue is we now have a guest hyphen settler immigration model. Now, Mohammed Fekker has been made aware of a big spike in racist attacks through its member organisations and via social media since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. Could you elaborate on some of these instances? People want to blame someone or something for, for say, for example, the, the virus. And unfortunately, um, I guess migrants are an easy target, uh, whether that's because, you know, if you're Asian Australian, just by the look, by your looks, people want to blame you for importing the virus or just being a migrant who will take your job after the, the virus has kind of come and gone. Um, unfortunately, that 
feeds into people's fears. And we have heard many different cases and the Australian Human Rights Commission has been documenting racist incidents um, in the past couple of months. You know, we've had people being, uh, you know, uh, ejected from their homes um, on their return from, uh, you know, China when they went to visit their family for the New Year's. And they were told that you're not no longer welcome here because, um, you know, we want to make sure that our homes are safe. But also you've got things like people verbally and physically being um, assaulted on the street, which is really scary and uh, is quite dangerous, even for people who are born here in Australia and, you know, they don't know anything except Australia. It creates a lot of anxiety and fear in the community. I guess um, that's kind of expected, um, but I think what is lacking um, and what is currently disappointing is um, the lack of action from government in terms of, um, you know, what the what the government's response is to this rise in racist attacks. Condemning racism when a journalist asks you about, you know, what your views are is not enough. Um, I think the government needs to have a strong plan and needs to have a national anti-racism strategy, which FECA has been calling for for over a year. It needs to have a plan to deal and actually outline to the community the, what the government's role and responsibility is in addressing this rise in racism. At the moment, we haven't seen any plan. And um, I think you can't, there's only so much you can condemn uh, before you, you know, you start losing people. A great deal of the rhetoric around curtailing immigration sounds like protectionism, or at least a distant cousin of the political ism family. Now, China has already threatened a levy on Australian barley, and global economies will clearly be very anxious to keep the worst of the coming recession from their shores. So could we see a global pivot towards protectionism, or at the very least, a world less globalised than the one we already live in? I I think it's more likely uh, in countries in Europe, for example, where that kind of attitude is already quite strong and is even politically strong, uh, attracting maybe up to 20% of uh, votes in, in elections. It's, it's less likely to be the case in Australia, where in general, you know, multiculturalism in the surveys is supported by a very high proportion of the Australian population. So I think we are a little bit different. But as the other speakers have said, uh, uh, I don't think it helps at all uh, when prominent people uh, make statements like migrants are taking the jobs of Australians. That really invites the extreme right to get out there and uh, take the actions that they do. Over the course of the discussion, the prevailing theme has been one of balance, uh, finding an equitable balance for immigration between families and temporary workers. Now, according to data from the ABS, Australia is home to approximately 2 million temporary visa holders. Now, that's including international students, short-term workers and working holiday makers, compared to more than 1.78 million permanent residents. Now, Mohammed Fekker have highlighted the importance of having an immigration model that is built to facilitate permanency. Now, does the panel see Australia's future immigration policy being fundamentally changed by COVID-19? You know, international students are key to, I guess, faster economy recovery, um, economic recovery of Australia. But also, I need to stress that it's really important that we don't forget our obligations to some of the most vulnerable people around the world, including family reunion program needs to increase, um, you know, our obligation to a lot of refugees um, who have spent many, many years waiting to be resettled and now 
they've been hit with pandemic. I think the, the migration program needs to be looked at. I, I just hope that it doesn't affect some groups of people worse than others. I think we can do all of that considered way without creating too much uncertainty for people who uh, need to come here to Australia. But I think the other interesting point here too is that um, in many ways the whole globalisation agenda is really in crisis at the moment. I mean, you know, in a sense this predated the COVID crisis. We've already seen Trump uh, with his very sort of uh, strong protectionist agenda and his sort of trade wars with China and others sort of signalling a winding back of that sort of free trade aspect of globalisation. Of course, the, the free capital aspect still remains, but in many ways, the Achilles heel in the globalisation project has always been the, the labour mobility, the free movement of labour internationally. And, and partly that's because, you know, unlike sort of movement of uh, goods and services or money, that when you have migration, you get neighbours, you get people living next door in your community, in your workplace. And in many ways, if you like, the constraint on the globalisation agenda in this regard has been the racism and xenophobia that people sort of um, use to oppose uh, new migrants coming in. Uh, so under the, uh, you know, the, whatever the post-COVID economic environment looks like, uh, it will be one in which I guess there's much less enthusiasm for um, for global movements of of, of people, um, and uh, I think in, in at the same time, many migrants themselves are the victims of the of the COVID crisis in in many sort of complex ways. So it really is a big challenge, I think, for the uh, the global migration system, which you know has remained pretty stable uh, uh, over the decades in terms of proportion of the populations that move. According to figures released by the Migration Institute of Australia in 2015, Australia's projected population will be 38 million by 2050 and migration will be contributing $1.6 trillion to Australia's GDP. So the statistics show that globalisation, regardless of how flawed that model may seem to be now, is critical to the Australian economy. Uh, for a country like Australia, that's critical because we simply rely more on migrants for population and workplace growth uh, than any other country. Uh, and, it, um, uh, and as the others have hinted at, it really goes down to, you know, what sort of, a, sort of a society we have in Australia. And the fact that we're a cosmopolitan society that's been built on immigration is something that's very central to our identity and our present and our future prospects. So, you know, I think it needs careful, and it always has needed careful uh, political leadership, the days of bipartisanship, uh, which in my view probably ended with John Howard, uh, were really now we can look back with rose-coloured glasses because it ought to be an issue that the major political parties agree upon. They agree not to score cheap political points about because the risks are just too great, the risk to social cohesion if you get some sort of, you know, sort of elevated um, sort of Blaney debate or Hanson debate that's sort of blowing up. Uh, leading to unrest. And the good thing, I think, is we haven't seen too much social unrest um, accompanying the COVID crisis internationally. Uh, to me, that, that's the worst case of the doomsday scenario. Not only you have all the economic downturn, but then you have the, the, the social riots that may sort of well be accompanied that directed towards uh, migrants or whatever. And, and hopefully, of course, uh, we just never get to that particular place. But Senior political leaders, I think, have got a great responsibility uh, here uh, about being, you know, leading the nation in, in a very sort of careful uh, and measured way. Uh, and hence, you know, just some phrases, some key words 
that are the dog whistle signals about, you know, what this debate really is. Well, I think uh, we, at the moment with the the government's program, that is uh, the permanent program, there are quite a lot of uh, applicants already on shore uh, and uh, the government could get close to, in this particular financial year, get close to filling its uh, quota by just taking people on shore. Uh, but the for the longer or the, or the immediate term, the important group are international students. According to data from the Department of Education, Skills and Employment in 2018, Australia's international education sector contributed $34 billion to the domestic economy, and that's an increase of 15.3% from the year before. So Minister for Education Dan Tian said Australia hosted a record 690,000 international students in 2018 who, of course, paid tuition fees and spent money on living costs. So there are rivers of gold in the education sector. And international students are students, uh, although uh, a lot of them work. and In fact, only about 50% of them work. Uh, and the Chinese students, only about 12% of them work. So it's uh, uh, they, they are students, and only about uh, 15% of them actually remain in Australia later as permanent residents. So 85% of them go back to where they came from when they've got their degrees. Uh, but international students are extremely important to the Australian economy. They're massively important to Australian universities. And nowadays, you know, a pretty high proportion of Australians go to Australian universities and they don't want them to collapse. Uh, and they, they also work in jobs that uh, pretty much nobody else wants to do. Uh, so they, they are enormously important. Well, as today's panel has made clear, immigration is a minefield and reforming the sector is even more fraught with danger. As Senator Keneally has made clear, there is sentiment amongst Canberra and further afield that curbing immigration is the answer to Australia's post-COVID woes. But as today's panel has shown, these sentiments are not uncommon when economic catastrophe is sitting on the horizon. That just about concludes today's episode. Thank you to our guests, Mohammed Al-Kavachi, Professor Peter McDonald, and Professor Jock Collins. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app, and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman, and I'll see you again here next week.